Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, September 28th, 2018. So here we are, Season 3. Never thought we'd get this far, but we are. And uh, September 28th, uh, that date automatically uh, stands out for me because it was, of course, 46 years ago today, Henderson's card, uh, the 1972 Summit Series. Um, most of you or all of you are far too young to remember, and I don't want to be that old guy that regales you with this story or that story about what a special time it was. And it was, but I'll be honest with you too. I mean, 46 years later, I completely have Summit Series burnout. And I can't. I, I don't even want to be around. Uh, well, maybe I do want to be around, but I don't want to have to pay attention in four more years when we hit the 50th anniversary of it because there's going to be tours and there's going to be more interviews. And quite frankly, it was a special occasion. There's never been anything like it in hockey or socioeconomically, politically, combining with hockey in Canada as the 72 Summit Series. But uh, uncle... Um, even I've had enough of it. What I do remember about it now, and, and this is what we'll celebrate today, it was 46 years ago today, I got what was called my 365. And for you kids out there, that is your learner's permit or your temporary driver's license. So back in the day, when I was just a young pup, 16 years old, um, you would make an appointment, you'd go write a written test, and they would give you your, what we called a 365, because it was good for one year. And it allowed you to drive a car as long as the person sitting in the seat next to you was a licensed driver. And I um, strategically scheduled my appointment for my 365 on the morning of Game 8 of the Summit Series, for the very specific reason, because as soon as I had a free pass to get out of school to go for my driver's license, um, my 365, I knew that I didn't have to go back and uh, watch the game in the cafeteria with everybody else at Woburn Collegiate in Scarborough. And just my own personal preference, I don't like watching hockey games on TV with a lot of people. Even now during the playoffs, when I sit around with James Duffy and O-Dog and everybody on the panel, if I had my druthers, I'd be home watching it by myself. And in the case of such a special occasion for Game 8 of the Summit Series, I was going home to watch it with my mom and uh, not in the gym with everybody else acting up and what have you. So anyways, so congratulations to me on my 46th anniversary of uh, getting my first step towards a driver's license. So that will uh, replace the uh, excitement over the 72 Summit Series for sure. So have a good summer. How was your summer? Mine was absolutely fantastic. I mean, the weather in Southern Ontario was hot and humid every day. Uh, It was one of the best summers that I can remember. Uh, Cottage time was spectacular. Dock time spectacular. Uh, Lots of margaritas, lots of frozen margaritas. Uh, Just... It was it was a real summer sort of summer, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Lots of good wine, lots of good times. And, and I guess the highlight of my summer was um, going with my wife and another couple um, to Italy for a vacation. And, and outside of the, the 2006 Winter Olympics, when I went to Torino, where I basically worked all the time and, uh, and was busy enough that Torino felt a lot like Hamilton to me, industrial city, busy working all the time. I didn't really get to experience, quote-unquote, Italy uh, in 2006. I'd never spent any time in Italy. So um, this was a revelation uh, for me. Went to, uh, landed in Rome, drove to Positano on the Amalfi Coast. Absolutely beautiful, breathtaking, swimming in the Tyranian Sea. It doesn't get any better than that. Um, 
up to Tuscany for a few days, stayed in Pienza, uh, spent time at Montepulciano and Montalcino, and had so much fantastic wine. Uh, it was just off the charts. And uh, then a couple of days in Rome and, and got to do the touristy thing and see the Colosseum and the Pantheon and all those other uh, great things. I'm not going to bore you with uh, what I did on my summer vacation, all the details of my, my Italy trip, um, other than to obviously say uh, uh, where I used to be a California cab guy for wine, I'm now officially an Italian wine guy. And it could be Brunello or it could be any of the great Super Tuscans or Amarone or Barolo, um, Primitivo. The, the, I just had so many different kinds of Italian wine this summer. Uh, that's my n- new favorite. So I'm sure after I have a trip to France, that'll be my new favorite. But uh, in any case, I, I did want to make a couple of very quick observations about Italy in general. Uh, number one, for for a relatively small country, relative obviously to Canada, in terms of the, the vast size of our country, um, it struck me that this is a place you could take a two-week vacation every summer for like 10 years and you don't even come close to seeing everything that there is to see. I mean, I bounced around and was able to experience the Amalfi Coast, Tuscany, Rome. But I mean, there's Cinque Terre, there's my, my son Sean, he was in Lake Como in July. I mean, there's just no shortage of different places and, and unique things to see and do. And it, it's, it's really remarkable. So that's number one. Number two, I got to hand it to the Italians. They are, without question, the best drivers in the world. And the reason they're the best drivers in the world is because on their highways, they follow one very important rule. And that is the left lane is a passing lane. And if you are in the left lane and you're not prepared to... Uh, to be driving 140 or 150 or 160, that's kilometers, by the way, um, then you're going to end up with an Alfa Romeo right up your ass because that passing lane is for passing only and they do not, do not appreciate somebody being in there dawdling and driving and not passing everybody in the, the lane to the right. So, And they, they do it without fail and it is the number one problem of driving on the 401 in Canada is the number of people that are driving 90 or 100 kilometers in the fast lane of the 401, just bopping along without a care in the world. So good on the Italians for figuring out the left lane is the passing lane. Uh, number two, also to do with their driving, is um, their roadside rest stops with um, with food are absolutely spectacular. Uh, the, the two most uh, common franchise names, their version of what in Ontario we would call en route, um, would be Chef Express, or auto grill, but you go in and you can get any kind of pizza, you can get any kind of pasta, you get prosciutto sandwiches, you got full bakeries, you got full delis. One of them we even stopped in had like a full butcher shop where you could pick your meat and and have it grilled right there. Um, so if you ever happen to be in Italy and see Chef Express or Auto Grill, do yourself a favor, pull over and uh, enjoy five star dining on the highway. So, anyways, that's. Uh, that's all I'll say about Italy for now. Love it. Got to go back sometime soon, but uh, not sure when that'll be. So um, let's get back to some business and uh, talk some hockey. Actually, before we start talking nuts and bolts hockey, let's talk for a couple of minutes uh, about the Bobcast in general. Um, if you saw some of my Canadian team profiles that I did um, for all the seven Canadian teams, um, we, we put them up on uh, iTunes and Spotify and all the other places you get podcasts, tsn.ca, as Bob as, as versions of the Bobcast. Um, they weren't really Bobcast, but it was just a, a way to use the portal to get this information to as many people as possible. But one of the things I mentioned in, in that, uh, in the intro to those team profiles, was that I wanted to take some time and think about whether to do the Bobcast again, um, obviously, I decided to do it. That's why I'm here talking to you with episode, uh, sorry, season three, episode one. So, uh, you know, I, I started thinking a lot, too, about changing the format. Should I do it every week? Try to find a way to do it every week. And people are like, yeah, yeah, do it every week. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. It's too much work. There's too many other things going on. 
Um, although I, I do envision there may be some weeks where, you know what, something pops up and, and, it, and it, if it's convenient, we'll throw in an extra one and, and some weeks do it every week, if that makes any sense. Um, the other thing is, you know, people said, well, what about getting a co-host? Getting a co-host doesn't actually reduce the workload. It just increases it for me because it, it creates a situation where now I've got to depend on somebody else and time up with them and it, it becomes that much more difficult to do. So what you see is what you get. You're stuck with just me um, talking. Um, the other thing that does appeal to me is the idea of maybe doing some interviews and, and maybe on the off week, maybe I'll try and do an interview with somebody and throw it up as an extra bonus Bobcast, off week Bobcast. Or there might be some regularly scheduled Bobcast where I don't feel like talking for a half hour, 45 minutes or an hour. And I just throw up a half hour, 40 minute interview with somebody important in the news that week. So that, that's a possibility that, uh, that we'll look at. But in the meantime, I mean, uh, as I said, what you're, I, mean, I was going to say what you see is what you get, but since you don't see anything, you're not getting anything. So what you hear is what you get. And the same basic format for the Bobcast that's been in effect for the last two years will continue now. And on that note, let's get to some questions. First question comes from Justin Post, who says, who is your pick for breakout player of the year for the 2018-19 season? That from Justin. Uh, well, Justin, um, I guess my answer to that question would be Mitch Marner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And before everybody starts yelling, eh, Toronto Sports Network and going crazy about all that bull that I get all the time, um, I guess, you know, what is even the definition of a breakout player? Um, but, but in my mind, Marner is a guy who, I mean, the second half of last season, he was, he was a dominant player in the National Hockey League. And I felt from the first time that I saw him play junior hockey in, with the London Knights and dominate the Ontario Hockey League, that he's a special talent. That he is, that, you know, even when he was in junior hockey, I was telling people, I do actually believe this guy may be closer to Patrick Kane than anybody else. And, and that's kind of crazy talk because we know what Patrick Kane has done in the National Hockey League. And, and Marner hasn't done that yet. And don't know that he will, but when I watched him play junior hockey at a time when a lot of people were saying, see all this stuff he's doing in junior hockey? He won't be able to do that in the National Hockey League. I felt the exact opposite. I felt like this is such a dynamic guy that makes everybody in the ice so much better and that his vision is just extraordinary and his skill level to make plays and score goals and steal pucks and, and just be a ball of energy, even though he's not the biggest guy in the world. Um, I just thought that's going to translate well at the National Hockey League level, and this guy could be an elite offensive player, superstar, um, close to what Patrick Kane is. And and I think he's shown flashes of that, but I don't know that he's had a year. Well, he hasn't. He hasn't had a year where wire to wire um, he was dominant. He had a very slow start to, to last season. And one of the big subjects in Toronto has been getting him his minutes and 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 earning the trust of Babcock right out of the gate and being a smaller player as opposed to a bigger guy like Austin Matthews. And, and Babcock, I think, is genetically predisposed to like bigger players as opposed to smaller players. But I think it's pretty clear as we now get into this coming season and what we saw in the preseason from Mitch Marner that he's clearly won Babcock over, that he's he, he tries to be a dynamo when he doesn't have the puck too and tries to be a uh, hard back checker and have a defensive awareness. And I just think this is the year that from wire to wire, um, this guy could be one of the elite offensive players in the National Hockey League. And playing in a line with John Tavares and, and, and Hyman won't hurt. And being on a team where there's a second line with Austin Matthews and Patrick Marlowe, and if he signs William Nylander, that won't hurt. And a third line with Nazem Kadri. So a lot of these Leaf, team, Leaf players are going to get favorable matchups. And I think Marner, Marner's really going to be able to take advantage of that. And I think he's going to kill it on the power play, which he did last year. I mean, the, the, the Toronto Maple Leaf power play has so many options. Now with Tavares in front, Matthews from the shooter position on the left side, Marner on the right half wall, Kadri in the middle or the bump position, and Morgan Riley on the blue line. But it all goes through Marner. And, and really the, the Toronto Maple Leaf power play, that five-man unit with Van Riemsdyk and Bozak last year, 
was the most effective five-man unit statistically on the power play in the NHL. And I think a lot of that's because Marner has so many options and uh, knows how to pick things apart better than just about anybody. So, so that's my pick for breakout guy. Um, I think there's other guys that are going to take huge steps this year. I think Charlie McAvoy is going to take a huge step uh, for the Boston Bruins. I always called him American Drew Doughty, still feel that way. Uh, I think Jesse Pugliarvi is going to take a big step for the Edmonton Oilers this year. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the rookie race later, but I'm really curious whether Henrik Borgstrom is going to break out to be a guy who could be a threat in, in the rookie, um, in the, 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 the Calder Trophy um, race. And I think guys like Ivan Provorov in Philly and a, and a bunch of other young guys like that, Nico Hishier with New Jersey, they're just going to continue to taking big, big steps. But Marner's my big uh, breakthrough guy, and I think uh, Poole Yarvey deserves honorable mention in Edmonton. So let's talk about that rookie race this year. Um, this question on the rookie race comes from somebody who doesn't leave a name, only a suffering Canucks fan with a little note to say, please say that on the podcast. There you go. I said it. Question is, do you expect Elias to win the Calder Trophy or are the Vancouver Canucks not good enough for Elias to reach that level? Elias, Elias. Um, in any case, he's talking about Elias Pettersson, of course. And um, I think Pettersson probably goes into the year maybe as a co-favorite um, if you're setting up odds with Rasmus Dahlin, the number one overall pick in last year's draft, the defenseman for the Buffalo Sabres. And I acknowledge it's much harder for a defenseman to win Rookie of the Year than it is for forwards. Um, but Darlene could be that level of talent um, that right off the hop, even on a Buffalo team that hopes to be better this year but still has a long way to go. Um, and defense is such a hard position for an 18-year-old defenseman. But he's, he's, he's got some special ability, and, uh, and so does Pedersen who, of course, last year was the top player, MVP, in the uh, the top league in Sweden, playing against the men. And so I think he's already got, he knows that he can play against um, more mature competition. Um, but it's always still a big adjustment um, to get to the National Hockey League and try to do that. And to do it on a Vancouver team, as a suffering Canucks fan noted, that may not be good enough. In, in many areas. This, this could be a, a long year for the Vancouver Canucks. I understand the hope that they're selling in, in Vancouver, and Pedersen is a big, big, big part of that. Um, and um, I think he's going to be terrific, And but I want to see, you know, does he hit the wall at 40 or 50 games? Does the lack of physical maturity catch up to him at some point? But I, I really like he, he and, and Darlene as, um, as high-end guys that you would think would be front runners uh, to start the season. Um, otherwise, it's, it's kind of a, I'm, I'm looking across the board here at guys and, and there's lots of really good names that you could easily pick. I mean, I'm really curious to see what Brady Kachuk does with the Ottawa Senators. He's big and he's raw um, and he just got drafted, but he was a late birthday. So he's got a little more uh, age and experience going for him than, than some of these other 18 year old rookies. And he's going to get some prime opportunity in, in Ottawa, playing on a line with Mark Stone and whichever center they decide to use with them. Um, but again, like Pedersen in Vancouver, um, you know, it's not going to be uh, all days of wine and roses in, in Ottawa this year either. So I'll be curious to see what he does. As I said, um, when I was talking about breakthrough players or breakout players, I'm really curious to see what Henrik Borgstrom does. I think he's been skating on the third line with the Florida Panthers in uh, in training camp. Let me quickly check my notes to see if I have that. One of the last lineups I had for them was Borgstrom playing with Jared McCann and Troy Brower. So I'll, I'll be curious with, with Huberto and Troshek and Hoffman and Barkoff and Dadnoff and Bugstad playing in the top six, if that's the case. If Borgstrom's going to get the kind of quality minutes that, that he might need to put up numbers to be in the, the mix for the... Um, for the Calder Trophy, but boy, oh boy, um, outside of the National Hockey League last year, he was one of the dynamic offensive performers for Jim Montgomery at Denver University, so I'll really want to keep an eye on that. Um, just, you know, Jasperi Kotkaniemi, um, unbelievable camp with Montreal. 
even though they didn't really want to keep him because he's only 18 years old and they thought the best thing for his long-term development, send him back to Finland. He's just played his way into the conversation, but it's a day-at-a-time proposition. So I'm not sure I want to make a prediction that Kotkaniemi could win Rookie of the Year, which he could, um, but he also could be back in Finland after five or six regular season games. We're just going to see how that plays itself out. I'll obviously be interested to see what uh, Andrei Svechnikov is going to do with the Carolina Hurricanes, of course. Um, went second overall in the, uh, the draft last year. And, uh, and yet, I mean, then, then you get a guy like Warren Fogel, who's not Andrei Svechnikov by any stretch, and is a guy that finished his junior career and, and has, has started to fashion some, some, some good games last year uh, when he uh, was a first-year pro. And um, he had a real good training camp. And again, he doesn't have the same pedigree as these other guys, not even close. But I'm always curious about guys like that as to whether a late-blooming guy that's uh, coming into the league as uh, having exhausted his junior eligibility, if he's got a chance to step up and, and get something done. Um, back to pedigree for a minute. You know, uh, Casey Middlestat did not impress in terms of per- production-wise with the Buffalo Sabres in training camp. But he's a really gifted offensive player. I'll be curious to see what, um, what he's got going for him. Kyler Yamamoto had a great camp with the Edmonton Oilers. Um, but again, he, he might be, he might do this year what he did last year, start the season in the National Hockey League and end up back in junior hockey. So it's, it's more of an uneven rookie class. Uh, I want to see what Jordan Cairo and Robert, Tom, Robert Thomas are going to do with the, uh, the St. Louis Blues um, in that same category as, uh, as Warren Fogle. What about, you know, Sammy Blaze and, uh, in St. Louis, had an unbelievable um, preseason camp. So um, it'll be a, a fascinating rookie of the year that maybe doesn't have as many surefire high-end guys that are guaranteed to dominate and spend the whole year in the National Hockey League, but a lot of 18- and 19-year-olds that could very well do that. Next question comes from Andrew Thompson in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Good morning, Bob. I tend to disagree with a lot of Montreal Canadian fans who believe Mark Bergevin hasn't done a good job of moving the team in the right direction thus far during his tenure. It's still very early, however, as you had stated on the panel this week, but the overall vibe with the team during training camp in the preseason has been very positive. It appears to me that he is making a solid effort to fix the team, as he vowed last year. Do you believe Hab fans can rest a little easier going forward, given what Bergevin has done to salvage not just his job, but the future of this team and the approval of its fan base. Thank you kindly, Andrew Thompson, Niagara Falls, Ontario. Well, there's a minority viewpoint in Montreal, I think, although um, with the Canadians having had a nice, positive vibe training camp, um, I I would not want to say the heat is off Mark Bergevin in Montreal. Um, I still think it is. Um, Because let's let's be honest, the the team fell off the rails last year. Um, Carey Price... Uh, the injury-riddled season of Shea Weber, um, which, you know, and he's, he's not scheduled to come back until, I believe, late November, early December this year, so almost a full calendar year without Shea Weber in the Montreal Canadian lineup, a, a distinct possibility. Um, and, and just the, the, the fan unrest and the, the unhappiness with Bergevin and the direction of the team this offseason was absolutely visceral in the Montreal market. Um, but there was a much more positive vibe in, uh, in training camp. Kotkaniemi played very well. Um, some of the other kids looked good. Uh, they made the Max Pacioretty trade. They did well on it, I think. And, you know, the Suzuki, I think, is going to be a real good National Hockey League player. They got a first-round pick. Tatar is, is 20 goals, money in the bank. Um, and... Under the circumstances, recognizing he was a year away from unrestricted free agency and and uh, not coming off a great year, I think they did well with that trade. Um, but, and it's still a huge but, um, they, they need to be a competitive team this year. They need not to be off the rails again and, and continue plummeting in the wrong direction uh, in order for, for Bergevin to feel any kind of security at all. Now, listen, owner Jeff Molson has been solidly behind him in every way, shape, and form. You could not get a more supportive owner 
for a general manager than what Jeff Molson has been to Mark Bergevin. And that, at times, has frustrated the Montreal fan base. Um, and they did start a rebuild. They don't call it that. But the, 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 the vast number of draft picks they had in this most recent draft and what they've got scheduled in the next year or two suggests that they are going to have a huge influx of young players into this lineup in the relative near future. But they did sign Paul Byron to a four-year contract, and they're not, you know, getting rid of Carey Price or Shea Weber. Or they, they want to be competitive. They want to, content, they want to try to compete for a playoff spot. And maybe the difference in attitude, last year everything got off on the wrong foot. They lost every preseason game. It just was, oh, bad right from the get-go. And I don't want to sit here and, and look through, have rose-colored glasses and say that just because Cockney's had a good training camp and, and they won more games than they lost and there were more positive things to draw on, um, that that makes up for the fact that their defense without Weber is still a little thin at the top end or maybe a lot thin uh, or that their center ice depth isn't close to what it needs to be. Um, these, may, these problems may manifest themselves in a significant way uh, in this season. But let's let it play out before we condemn Mark Bergevin and the Montreal Canadiens to another year that they went through like last year. But uh, let's be honest, uh, a, a really terrible start and, and a feeling of desperation that this thing is trending in the wrong direction isn't going to be good for anybody in Montreal. Let's shift over to the Ottawa Senators, and this question comes from Constantinos. That's what I, yeah, Constantinos, Tikos or Tekos. Uh, hey, Bob, will the Senators still have the same ownership by the end of the season or maybe by July 1st? <laughs> Constantinos is, um, like a lot of Ottawa Senators fans right now, not very happy with the direction of the Senators and, in particular, owner Eugene Melnick. And um, I think I get about a million of these questions um, every week into the Bobcast email. And I think Senators fans like to think that if they ask the question long enough, the answer will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, my short answer to Constantinos, absent any new information, is that yes, the Senators will have the same ownership by the end of the season or July 1st. But like everybody else, I hear all the rumors. I understand the assumption that at some point in time, uh, it's all going to fall apart for Eugene Melnick, that he doesn't have the financial staying power um, to hold on to the team over the long haul. But and, and like I say, I hear that, you hear that, but when we hear it, it's just, it's just idle chatter. And it may tr- turn out to be true one day. It may very well be, but I don't know that. And I don't think... Senators fans know that either. I think it's wishful thinking on the part of a lot of them. And I understand, as I said, the the unhappiness with the Montreal Canadiens fans toward Mark Bergevin. I mentioned that being a visceral experience. It's the same sort of thing with Ottawa Senators fans and, and Eugene Melnick. And all I can assume is that Eugene Melnick publicly says, I'm not selling the team, I have no intention of getting rid of it, I'm here for the long haul. Um, That may or may not be the case, but that's his intent. So if somebody asked me a question, will he still be here by the end of the season, or July 1? Without any tangible evidence otherwise, my answer to the question is, yeah, he will be. And if that changes, we'll let you know. Um, Next question from another Senators fan, and this is, Somewhat down the same road, but a couple of sense questions here. This one from Keith Sari. Um, Hi, Bob. Despite Eugene Melnick's repeated denials, I assume that where there is smoke, there is fire regarding the rumors of him either selling the team or being so close to the edge financially that he'll eventually have to consider a sale before the damage to he does to our club becomes even more irreparable. Question. What sort of optimism can you provide Discourage Senators fans. What's the likely end game here? Help! That from Keith in Montreal. Wow, I uh, barely got that question out. Hold on, I'm going to take a quick drink of water here. Huh? Oh, there we go. Much better. Sends questions. They get me all choked up. Anyways, um, I don't know if I can provide optimism necessarily 
for discouraged Senators fans? Uh, as for what's the likely end game here, that's a good question. Uh, you know, if you listen to Eugene Melnick and or Pierre Dorian, the rebuild is on. Um, but the problem with the rebuild is that um, they don't have the first round pick for this year. And most rebuilding teams, the benefit of a rebuild is you know you're not going to be very good during a rebuild. Um, quite often, teams, when they say we're offloading all our veteran guys and we're going to tear it down and you rebuild, you, you intentionally put it in the ditch and you reap the reward. And whether that's the first overall pick in the draft um, or whether you end up with the second or the third or the fourth, the point being you end up with a franchise building block as the benefit of being really bad for a year. And the problem the Senators might run into this year is that they did such a quick about-face on on a go-for-it team that they don't have their first-round pick. Because last year, when they traded Kyle Turris um, and brought Matt Duchesne in, and in the process gave up their first-round pick, they were in the here and now in a big, big way, coming off a year where they were one goal away, as we all know, well-documented, one double overtime goal away from going to the cup final. But the wheels fell off after the Duchesne trade, the tourist trade. And we know that Peter Dorian had a tough call to make at the draft. Do you give up your first round pick, which turned out to be Brady Kachuk, to the Colorado Avalanche? Or do you wait a year uh, and give it up? And he decided, you know, bird in hand, Brady in hand. Um, that they wanted the the, the the Kachuk pick and they would take their chances and try to be a better team this year than they were last year and not put themselves in in the lottery driver's seat and not worry about Jack Hughes because they're not going to get him anyways. Well, they might well be one of the worst teams in the National Hockey League this year. We'll see how that plays out. And they may very well be a lottery team. And even if they're not picking first overall... The point being is that the reward for being bad should be to get a guy like Dylan Cousins or Capo Caco or Vasily Podkolzin or Kirby Doc or Philip Broberg or Bowen Byram. There's some real good guys in this year's draft, and the Sens aren't going to get it because they traded it away. So the rebuild gets set back a little bit because you would otherwise have a franchise building block coming in. So that that kind of diminishes some of the optimism, but I will say this. Thomas Shabbat is an absolute blue chipper. I think Colin White's going to be a real good National Hockey League player. Brady Kachuk, I think, is, is going to be a really impactful player and maybe sooner rather than later for the Ottawa Senators. So they are not without some talent. And, and yet, we also know from watching the Edmonton Oilers and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Chicago Blackhawks and any number of teams that have gone through long, slow, painful rebuilds to the glory years, um, how much pain and suffering there can be. So I don't have an answer on how optimistic Sens fans should be. I'm sensing they're not very optimistic, and uh, I understand that. And, uh, and and I think I've just sort of answered the next question that I was going to ask, and that was from Jimmy Hyde, who said, Hi, Bob, I'm an Ottawa Senators fan, parentheses, pray for me. <laughs> And with all this talk of a rebuild being in a dumpster right now, I was wondering, historically speaking, how many seasons does a rebuild take to show any signs of progress? And so, as I say, most of these, you know, deep dive rebuilds are three to five year propositions, although the Oilers managed to turn it into a decade long process. Um, so I, I don't know how quickly Ottawa is going to be competitive. I like a lot of their kids. I'd feel a lot better about the rebuild if I knew if the Senators are bad this year they were going to get Jack Hughes or one of those other guys in the 2018, sorry, sorry, 2019 draft class. Now let's move on to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, lots of William Nylander questions. I'm hesitant to go too deep on the Nylander front because sure enough, the longer I talk about it, the more likely while I'm talking about it, <laughs> his contract will get done. Although I have no reason as I say this right now, what time is it? It's one fifty-six p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, September 28th. Um, I have no reason to believe anything's imminent, um, just in case anybody was reading that into it. But um, nevertheless, there were a couple of questions 
that are quasi Nylander related, and they both bring up the same thing. So l- let me fire these ones out. The first one comes from Aslam. And hi, Bob, huge fan of the Bobcast. I was just wondering regarding the Nylander contract if signing bonuses could be a potential advantage the Leafs could use to close the gap between the two sides on a long term deal. If you look at Dreisaitl, Ehlers, Larkin, or Pasternak as comparables, each of those contracts have little or nothing, bracket Ehlers, in the way of signing bonuses as a percentage of the total contract value, just a basic salary structure. Could the use of signing bonuses as a form of lockout protection and the fact that there's significant value in getting paid a large sum of your salary up front on July 1 be a tactic the Leafs could use to bring down the AAV of the contract? All the best, Aslam. And Aslam apparently is sharing a brain with Adam Maris, who also asks, Hi, Bob, love the pod. Here's my question. Can you discuss the way in which signing bonuses, salary structure, lockout protection, lockout insurance can affect RFA negotiations? With regards to William Nylander in Toronto, for example, I noticed that comps like Philip Forsberg, Ehlers received no signing bonus dollars, whereas guys like Pasternak and Goodrow did. Would it not be in the Leafs' interest to load up on maximum signing bonuses and lockout protection in exchange for reduced AAV? Do conversations like this take place? Adam from Toronto. Okay, just to clarify for people, and, and I think both Aslam and Adam understand the way this works, but just in case, because the, the, the literal question that they asked it is if the Leafs were to load up signing bonuses for signing bonus for Nylander, it doesn't reduce the, you, you can't artificially reduce the average annual value. The cap hit doesn't change based on um, how much signing bonus, how much signing bonus versus salary. That's immaterial because they take signing bonus and salary together and over the number of years of the contract, divide it by the number of years, and that's your AAV or cap hit. But I think what they're saying is if you promise to give William Nylander, let's say they're going to give him $6.5 million, and we'll give you $6 million up front and you'll get 500000 in salary or say five point five up front and a million in salary. Um that he would be willing to take a lower cap hit than he otherwise might because he's getting the money up front. I don't think William Nylander or any player in the National Hockey League would think getting the money up front on July 1st is that important as to take a lower cap hit. So I don't think it really works. And, and, and the, but both Aslam and Adam bring up a good point. There are some teams that are absolutely loath to do anything other than the Nashville Predators for one. Look at Ryan Ellis's deal. There is some lockout protection in it, but it's not as overt as it is with some other people. And and teams like the, the Predators don't do as much signing bonus uh, as other teams. And no move clauses and no full no trade clauses are much more difficult to come by in some organizations than others. And there's no question that a team like the Toronto Maple Leafs, because they have a lot of money and they don't worry about things like that, they if they so choose... Um, can make things a little more favorable for a player. But for a player like Nylander coming out of his entry-level deal, he, he's looking at the, the cap hit and the AAV and the term. That, that's the most important thing. And as I said, I'm not going to go into too much detail on Nylander's situation other than what we've been hearing all week leading up here with Nylander still not signed as of now 2 o'clock Eastern time on uh, Friday, September 28th is that he's looking for a six- or a seven-year deal um, at a number somewhere north of $7 million, maybe even north of $8 million. And that the Toronto Maple Leafs are looking at the Nick Ehlers contract at $6 million or the David Pasternak contract at around $6.7 million as the, the window or the comparables for him. And, and I think one of the problems they're running into on this vast gaff, the gulf between the, that 6 to 6.7 window and the well over seven or well over eight, um, that the Nylander camp is looking for is that Nylander probably fears that somewhere down the line, Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews are going to hit home runs, that Marner's going to get eight or nine or maybe even 10 within a year, and that Austin Matthews is likely to get 10, 11, 12, or maybe even 13 um, within a year, and that Nylander doesn't want to be sitting there as the third amigo making three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine 
million dollars less than, well, it wouldn't be nine, but <laughs> significantly less money than his two pals. Um, so maybe the way you, you bridge that gap is to do a bridge deal. It's not ideal. The Leafs don't want to do a bridge deal. Nylander doesn't want to do a bridge deal. But it might be the insurance that he needs to protect himself against falling too far behind if Marner and Matthews hit it out of the park on big deals. And, you know, Ryan Johansson signed a three-year bridge deal at $4 million. He eventually was able to parlay that into an eight-year deal at $8 million. And Nikita Kucherov was able to parlay a three-year bridge deal at $4.77 million into an eight-year deal at $9.5 million. So signing a three-year bridge would allow Nylander back up to the plate in as early as two years. And if he shoots the lights out on, on Matthew's wing this coming season and the next season after that, then, then he allows himself an opportunity to get back into the eight or the nine or the nine-plus universe where maybe Marner and Matthews are already sitting, but the point is he'll know what universe those guys are in and have a better feel for it. So maybe that's the solution, maybe it's not, but in the meantime, Leaf fans are getting a little agitated because Nylander's not in camp as of 2.03 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, September 28th. Okay, let's try to get some uh, quick hits from around the league here. Um, this one... This question is from Alan Beausoleil of Leamington, Ontario. Hi, Bob. Love the Bobcast and all the work you've done within the hockey world. I hope the Bobcast continues whichever way you decide to move forward, as I know you were questioning it in the previous episode. Very informative and love your insight into the game. My question involves the Detroit Red Wings and what they do moving forward now that Steve Eiserman is back in Michigan and a free agent next season. Does he come aboard? What does the future look like both on and off the ice for Detroit. Well, Alan, um, you're absolutely right. Obviously, everybody knows by now that Steve Eiserman is in, in a senior advisory consulting role to new general manager Julian Brisbois of the Tampa Bay Lightning. And uh, for family and geographic reasons, um, Eiserman decided to, to go back to Michigan. And, and I think, and again, I, I'm not saying there's been any discussions um, because if there were, it would be tampering. Um, but I think everybody in hockey feels like Steve Eiserman is destined to end up with the Detroit Red Wings. Now, Kenny Holland just signed a two-year extension prior to this season. Um, I, could, I could envision, and this is just me spitballing, this is not anything that's in place, I'm not reporting any breakthrough here. What I, I'm spitballing and saying what I could see happening uh, is Steve Eiserman coming in to run the fortunes of the Detroit Red Wings when his contract expires in Tampa after this coming season. And I could see Kenny Holland moving up the food chain to make way for Iserman, or I could see Kenny Holland maybe being a candidate or um, a possibility with the new Seattle expansion team. Um, and I don't, I don't want to get too hung up on contracts and timing and what have you, I just think the conventional hockey wisdom amongst most of us in the game who do this for a living is we feel like Iserman's going to be boots on the ground with the Detroit Red Wings sooner rather than later once his contract expires. But I do not know that um, as a fact. And you couldn't know it as a fact because I don't believe for a moment that anything's being agreed to. But, uh, yeah, that's my, my feeling on, on Stevie Y eventually ending up uh, with the Red Wings. Um, now, next question in the similar vein comes from Justin Fell in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Hi, Bob. Most of the Detroit fans think that Iserman is headed back to Detroit, touche, to replace Ken Holland eventually when Holland decides to retire. My question is, do you think the Canucks owners, the Vancouver Canucks owners, may try to convince Iserman to come to Vancouver as team president? I'm just asking because I keep hearing the Canucks owner always wants a big name and there were rumors in January from Dave Pratt from TSN 1040 that the owner may want to fire Jim Benning and hire Holland as the new general manager because he's a name, but the owner decided to keep Jim Benning after all that from Justin. Um, short answer for all the reasons I said. If, if, if you think that Steve Eiserman felt uncomfortable geographically being in Tampa, um, even though I think his birth certificate shows Cranbrook, British Columbia, 
not a chance in the world he's going to end up with the Vancouver Canucks, Justin. Um, and as I said, I'd be very surprised if it doesn't work out for him somehow, sometime, with the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, next question comes from Jack McCarthy in Michigan. Hi, Bob. I was wondering if you know anything about Mark Hunter's situation. I know he headed back to London and he's taken over as general manager of the OHL Knights again. But do you feel by this time next year he will be employed with a new NHL team? Or will he remain long-term in London like his brother Dale? I'm surprised that an executive on his level is back to junior, even if he is part owner, part, uh, part of the ownership group there. Also, has the league expressed any concerns with NHL teams having such deep connections to junior teams, such as how Philly has a small connection with the Sarnia Sting, Hatcher's a former Flyers executive, and Toronto had a connection to the London Knights, or is the league concerned with NHL teams having relationships with teams that contain future draft picks? That's from Jack McCarthy. We'll talk about Mark Hunter in a moment. On, on the issue of uh, close ties, it, it, it's an incestuous world that we live in in hockey. It's just the way it is. There's, there's no other way around it. Um, and, and to your point, I mean, the Toronto Maple Leaf connection with Kyle Dubas now as the general manager has less to do with Mark Hunter, trust me on that, um, than with the Sioux Greyhounds where Dubas came from. And the Vegas Golden Knights, I mean, you don't get much closer to the Brandon Wheat Kings than Kelly McCrimmon, uh, an owner of the Wheat Kings and former general manager and head coach of the Wheat Kings, being such an important part of the front office with general manager George McPhee. So this sort of stuff happens all the time. There's no way around it, and I don't think the NHL has any any real concerns with it. It's just the lay of the land um, in hockey, and there's no way around that. Now, as for Mark Hunter's situation uh, with the London Knights or eventually the National Hockey League, let me say a couple of things. First off, with all due respect to my son, Mike McKenzie, general manager of the Kitchener Rangers, and every other OHL general manager out there, um, I think it's safe to say that Mark Hunter is vastly overqualified to be an OHL GM. Um, he's a real good hockey man. And I know after his, um, his departure from the Toronto Maple Leafs, and on July 15th, he effectively became a free agent in terms of signing with an NHL team, um, that a lot of people assumed that right away Lou Lamorello was going to bring him in uh, to oversee things with the... Uh, with the New York Islanders, and then that didn't happen. And I believe, and I stand to be corrected on this, but I believe there was some conversation between Mark Hunter and the Detroit Red Wings vis-a-vis -a, -vis a position within their organization. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, things didn't materialize, and Mark Hunter does find himself back with the Knights. And if the Knights were to get all the players that are eligible to play for them this year, they just got Adam Boquist from the Chicago Blackhawks. I don't think they're getting Brady Kachuk uh, from the Ottawa Senators this year. Um, I don't think Alex Formington from the Senators is going to start the season in the OHL. I think he's more likely to start it in the National Hockey League. Whether he finishes it there remains to be seen. Evan Bouchard with the, uh, the Edmonton Oilers is going to get a look here, I think, with regular season games, if I, unless I miss my mark on that. Um, not to say he'll be there for the whole season, but man, oh man, that's a lot of uh, a lot of talent. And uh, the Knights have got some great young players that they've drafted that could make a big impact in the OHL. So I think if they were to get back all their players, their Memorial Cup contenders, um, if they don't get back some of them, they could still be a very, very good team that could contend in the OHL. Um, as for Hunter's future, I do think eventually, a year from now, that maybe he will be back in the National Hockey League. And I'll tell you what, if, if I were running the Seattle franchise, this may be a, a real good guy uh, to get into the fold um, because I think he's got a real good eye for talent and, uh, and would do a great job. The same way that Kelly McCrimmon did a great job coming into Vegas as an assistant general manager, um, I could see Mark Hunter doing the same thing, and, and who knows, maybe Mark Hunter wants to hold out for a general manager's job in the National Hockey League, but in the meantime, I think there'll be multiple teams down the road that will be looking at, to bring Hunter into the fold in some capacity. Another Detroit Red Wing-oriented question, this one from Richard. Richard says, should he stay or should he go? In brackets to the AHL, Philip Zadina, your thoughts? 
Well, Philip Zadina, who, of course, was uh, taken by the Detroit Red Wings, he fell right into their lap, the great Halifax Moosehead scorer from last year's draft. Um, fell right into the Red Wings' lap, and now they've got to make a decision. Uh, he, uh, he won't be going back to Halifax in the uh, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League um, because he was on a year-by-year loan situation to the CHL. He, um, he can go to the American Hockey League. So that is the choice that the Red Wings are looking at. And what happens in tonight's game against the Toronto Maple Leafs and tomorrow night's game against the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, some of what happens in those two games, and I believe Zadine is scheduled to play in both of them. I don't know that for sure, but that's what I was led to believe, that it's quite possible he could be playing in back-to-back games here against the Leafs. And because the Leafs are going to have their A lineup uh, tonight, Friday night against the Wings, um, it would be a real good measuring stick game for Philip Zadina. Um, Zadina's been okay at camp. He's been getting better every day. And his talents are such, uh, the ability to score goals, the ability to put himself in scoring positions, um, that you know he, he could play in the National Hockey League this season. I do believe that. But I think the question the Wings are asking themselves is, is it the best thing for him to play in the National Hockey League this season? And the answer to that, um, is much more difficult. Um, I think they could keep him in the National Hockey League, but if they did, it might be in a lower-level role, and I think development-wise, he'd probably be better off going to the American Hockey League and getting an opportunity to get some prime-time offensive minutes. Um, right now, I would think that of the young guys on the Detroit roster, um, Rasmussen and Bertuzzi, are almost certainly going to be on the 23-man roster to, uh, to start the season. And I realize Bertuzzi's got, he's done his apprenticeship in the American Hockey League. Uh, Rasmussen has not. But I think in the eyes of the Red Wings right now, Rasmussen is probably more physically NHL-ready than Zadina is, although Zadina's probably got a higher ceiling than Rasmussen, although that's not to suggest Rasmussen doesn't have a high ceiling. So... Um, if you're asking me to guess right now whether I think Zadina will be on the opening night roster of the Red Wings, I might err on the side of saying, nah, I think he'll go, he'll be in Grand Rapids. Um, but I think he's also a guy that um, could be in Grand Rapids, could end up uh, playing for the, the Czechs at the World Juniors and uh, maybe come up midway and, and be a lot more ready to be a National Hockey League player midseason than now. But um, I think all options are still very much on the table for the Red Wings. And let's see how these next two games play out. Alrighty, next question comes from Jim Pfeiffer. His question is, how do you see the Blue Jackets getting out of the Panarin-Bobrovsky debacle? Do you think they will to keep one or both or neither? Or do they go for broke and pick up another piece at the deadline? That from Jim Pfeiffer. Man, oh man, I don't envy general manager Jarmo Kekalainen of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, he's got a difficult situation facing him, and it's not really of his doing. It's not that he made a mistake um, or erred in any way, I don't think. It's just circumstance. And the circumstance, of course, is the fact that Artemi Panarin has let it be known that he's not prepared at this time to sign a contract extension with the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. And uh, their Vezina-caliber netminder, Sergei Bobrovsky, um, hasn't been as definitive, I don't believe, but the same vibe and the same feeling is sort of out there that if you, you read between the lines, their best offensive player, I think you can call Panarin their most dynamic offensive player, and their number one goaltender, who's a Vezina, when he's on his game, is a Vezina caliber guy. Um, if you read between the lines, it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for those guys re-signing with the Columbus Blue Jackets. And if the Columbus Blue Jackets were a really crappy team that wasn't supposed to make the playoffs this year, it'd be real easy for Kekalainen. He'd be, uh, he could be wheeling and dealing. He could be parlaying these guys into great future assets and trying to get a King's ransom for one or both of Panarin and Bobrovsky. Um, but if I were Yarmo doing what he's doing, uh, I would be doing exactly what he's doing. And, and that is because the Blue Jackets are a really good hockey team, 
Some people think they're good enough to win the Metro Division this year, but even if they're not, um, they're a competitive hockey team that can most certainly contend for a playoff spot. And were they to make the playoffs, um, you know, they could be a real tough out. Um, so given that, all Yarmo Kekalainen can do is what he's doing right now, and that is publicly saying we're in no hurry to do anything. We've got both guys under contract for this season. We're going to do everything we can to convince them to sign here in Columbus, and we'll just take it one day at a time. And that's all they can do. Um, but here's where it gets really sticky. What if the Columbus Blue Jackets are first place in the Metro Division leading up to the trade deadline, and Panarin and Bobrovsky are still saying, eh, not prepared to sign back in Columbus? Then what do you do? That's, it's the best-case scenario, worst-case scenario. Cause best-case scenario because it would mean the Blue Jackets are a really good team. Worst-case scenario would be knowing that, yeah, you could keep these guys for the run, and you, but you could lose in the first or second round of the playoffs, not contend for the Cup, and these guys could walk off on July 1, and you get absolutely nothing to show for it. Um, you know, the, the worst, best-case scenario is that the team comes out of the gate really slow, and they're not a playoff team at all, and you can just trade these guys as rentals um, without any uh, feelings of guilt to your fan base. Um, but... The flip side of that is you don't want to be a bad team. You want to be a good team, and, and they are a good team. So it's really on the horns of a dilemma for Yarmo Kekalainen, and I'm sure he's going to continue to monitor the trade situation for each guy. And just that sliding scale of trade them or not trade them will in large part be dependent on, A, what, they're off, what the Blue Jackets are offered for these guys, and B, where they are in the standings and how close they are to contending for the Cup this season. But in any case, it's... Uh, it's not fun times in CBJ. Final quickie question goes to Dennis Goodfellow, who simply asks, Rasmus Sandin, back to Sault Ste. Marie or Sweden? Um, the Rasmus Sandin situation is interesting. He played last year for the Sioux Greyhounds, was drafted in the first round by the Toronto Maple Leafs, had a very good camp. Uh, Mike Babcock spoke glowingly of how the young man played. He's only 19 years old, still junior eligible. Um... And, and he and Timothy Liljegren played as a pair in the preseason and gave Leaf fans great hope for the future on their blue line because they're both smart, skilled, skate well, mobile, puck movers, shots from the point, create offense. Um, so the, Leaf, the future of the Leaf defense looks quite bright based on what we saw of Sandine and Liljegren playing together as a pair in the preseason. But he was sent down to the Toronto Marlies of the American Hockey League. And the... The question that Dennis asked back to the Sioux or Sweden left out a very important option, and that is playing in the American Hockey League for the Toronto Marlies. Uh, that's what's going to happen right now uh, in the very short term is that Sandine is going to be part of the Marlies camp. He's going to play AHL games. And the Leafs, in concert with Sandine and his reps, will decide what's in his best long-term interest for development. But if he shows he's ready to play in the American Hockey League, um, then that's where he's going to be. And um, the, the, he could end up back with Rogla in Sweden. Um, and I think that's probably a better bet than Sault Ste. Marie. And ultimately, Sandine does hold the hammer on that one to some degree. Keeping in mind, a young player and his representatives always want to do things in concert with a National Hockey League team that drafted them. And everybody knows how closely Dubas is connected to the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. Um, but... Sandine is like Philip Zadina in that he was also a loan situation, not, um, not the property of, uh, of the Greyhounds. And therefore, those loan situations have to be renewed on an annual basis. So in order for Rasmus Sandine to play for the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, that can't happen unless he signs a waiver allowing it to happen. And so, therefore, if he really were adamant and said, if I'm not playing for the Marlies in the American Hockey League, um, then I want to play for Rogla in the Swedish Hockey League, he has the ability, by withholding his signature on a transfer, to his transfer card to Sault Ste. Marie. Um, but that'll all get sorted out um, as we see what plays out in uh, training camp. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if Sandine's good enough to play in the American Hockey League right now. 
All right, that's it for the uh, the question and answer portion of the Bobcast. Got a little bit of listener feedback here, a couple of closing remarks, and uh, we'll get you out of here. Um, this first listener feedback comes from Kevin Broad. Uh, subject says, thank you, Bob, dash, former Bronco. Hi, Bob. Not sure if you'll ever see this, but in case you do, thank you. Thank you to all and all of TSN for such an outstanding production in Humboldt. I grew up in Humboldt, and everything everyone said is so true. Growing up, Broncos were my idols, not NHL players, and I don't think I missed more than a handful of games from ages 5 to 15 before playing AAA midget for the Saskatoon Contacts before returning to my hometown and being one of two locals on the Broncos roster. At the time, it had been four or five years since any locals were on the team, it was an amazing experience. I played two seasons in the Bolt before heading to the BCHL in Chilliwack and moving on to play at RPI. I believe I played against your son for one year in 2007 before I spent two years as a volunteer assistant with Seth Appert and Jim Montgomery, now of the Dallas Stars, once I graduated. I still reside in the Albany area, so I haven't seen and felt anything firsthand, but what I do know is that this production really helped me be a part of the process. This tragedy has affected more than I thought it was going to, and I'm being able to spend four hours watching was really a healing moment for me. TSN touched on everything and honored absolutely everyone that should have been. May we never forget those that were lost, but this game in production for the world to see is a big step on moving forward and rebuilding the team and community. Thanks again to everyone that made it happen. Humboldt strong, Kevin Broad. Well, Kevin, um, I'm absolutely humbled by your letter, and I'll just follow it up with another quick letter um, from somebody else. Um, This one's from Gibby. Hi, Bob. Just wanted to say thank you as a fan of the game. Um, I really enjoy the Bobcast. I want to say that TSN did an amazing job for the humble Broncos return to the ice for their first game. All of Saskatchewan thanks your TSN team for being there for the families of those affected, the community, and this province. So um, what what, uh, Gibby and Kevin Broad are referring to, of course, is the fact that TSN went into Humboldt and broadcast um, all the ceremonies pre and post game of their first regular season game after that horrible bus crash that claimed 16 lives and so deeply affected all 29 families and as well as the, 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 the city of Humboldt, the province of Saskatchewan, and really all of Canada, all of the world, and certainly all of the hockey world. And just let me first say on behalf of all our TSN group, it was an absolute extreme honor and privilege to be there, to be invited there. And I think that's the key. Um, the families of those 29 uh, people that were on the bus ultimately were the ones who made the call on whether or not um, they wanted as much attention drawn to the first game. And as I said on the broadcast, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it must be, especially for the parents of the 16, uh, 16 fatalities um, to watch the page get turned on another season of Bronco hockey, knowing that their son or daughter um, couldn't be there couldn't be involved and wouldn't be involved and is no longer with us, at least not in the, the, the physical sense. And I think everybody associated with TSN wanted to make sure that we tried to find the right tone where we, we pay tribute to those 29 families and, and those who are deeply affected. And, and trust me, they are deeply affected by what happened. Um, but we also wanted to sort of celebrate the beginning of another hockey season um, and and that trying to carry on all the while being respectful and understanding of, of what had happened before and and what so many families are going to have to live with and without. So anyways, it was uh, an incredible moving experience for all of us to be there. It was a very difficult broadcast to do, and yet it was an honor and a privilege, as I said, to, um, to do that broadcast. So on that note, we will um, end this Bobcast always thinking of Humboldt, the families, and Humboldt Strong.
Um, and we will um, continue to keep on keeping on. And I think that's all any of us can do in those situations. I was going to, um, you know, come up with a, a million Netflix recommendations, talk about some wine. We'll get to all that stuff in due time. But uh, I wanted to end this first Bobcast on that note on the Humboldt Broncos and uh, the time that I spent in Humboldt getting to know some of the the kids. And uh, some of them, there's a few of them that are playing uh, university hockey just around the corner from where I live. And I do plan on getting out to see the UOIT Ridgebacks, coached by my old friend Curtis Hodgins, uh, who once coached my son Mike in junior A and coached alongside my brother-in-law, John Goodwin. Um, get out to a Ridgebacks game, um, uh, Canadian University Hockey, and uh, go see how those three Broncos and their families are doing uh, playing for the Ridgebacks this year. So uh, all of that and more to come over the course of this season. Hope you enjoyed the first Bobcast, and we'll be back at you in two weeks. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.